When he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Peter addressed the people because there was a commotion after this miracle was done by Peter and John. Now we know that the crowd was Jewish because they were gathering at the temple. And we know that they were probably serious Jews or uh, even Jewish leaders because we know that they showed up three times for prayer during the day, and this was the time in which Peter and John healed the lame man that we read about in the first 10 verses. Notice that this man that was healed clung to Peter and John. We read earlier that he was jumping around, so apparently there was kind of this dance between hugging Peter and John, dancing around because he was so excited, demonstrating, by the way, that his legs were completely healed. And all of this was done on Solomon's porch. It was kind of a lobby where people gathered right before the main entrance of the temple. The Jewish crowd was shocked to see that this lame man was undeniably healed. And perhaps there's a lesson in this, that faith expresses itself in not being shocked at God's intervention in our lives. Instead, we, we welcome and even expect him to move. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Now, our text doesn't say that the crowd was refusing to acknowledge a miracle What was taking place is they were saying that it was Peter and John who did it. It was their power. They were refusing to acknowledge the real source of the miracle. Because remember, they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Peter says, do you think that it was by means of our own power or godliness that we made this man walk? And he refutes that this miracle was some act of independence on Peter and John's part, separate from God. And I think from this, we see something underneath. There's something clear to Peter, but apparently blinding to the people that he is speaking to. And it wouldn't take long for him to get to his point. Peter makes clear that the miracle was not because of, in his own words, our own power or piety. Apparently, reading the crowd, knowing what they were thinking. If there are two things that I think a a religious people can be proud about, It's power and piety. Power actually refers to a a controlled influence. And in the case of religion, it means that force of our character or a moral impeccability. In other words, the Jews thought that this miracle happened basically because John and Peter had their act together. That they morally exceeded other people. And apparently their flattery was continuing. He said, Uh, It's not because of our piety either. That's not why this miracle happened. It means religious diligence. In other words, they, they followed the law. They were dutiful Jews. They checked off the list of the things to believe and the things to do as a Jew. This is not why God worked like he did. You know, I think if the truth be known, many of us think like the religious crowd in that day. 
In other words, we think that if we position ourselves with the right kind of, of performance, then stuff is really going to happen. I mean, I do this, and then God is going to do that for me. That's what a lot of us think. And I think we know this because what happens when God doesn't meet our expectations? We get ticked at God. We get upset at God because we didn't get what we expected. Things didn't go our way. And we start protesting based on the fact of, look what I've done, God. Look at what I give to you. Look at how I live my life. You would think you could at least do this. And we become greatly impatient, even protesting. Let me ask you this. Do we really think that all the things that we enjoy in life is because we've been such good people? Is that really our thought? Now, yes, there is fruit to obedience. Yes, there's, there's fruit to hard work. But may we never forget, it is God who gives the strength. It is God who provides the resources. God who is deserving of the praise and the honor and the glory for anything that we enjoy in life. Did this miracle take place because Peter and John were spiritual superstars? Absolutely not. And here, I think, is great news. Because I see myself as a regular person, and I think most of us might do the same. I don't see myself as a person going around healing others. It's like that, that seems to be removed from most of our experience. But can we expect God to intervene with us normal people? And I think the answer to that is a resounding yes. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Now let's state the obvious. Peter is making a beeline for Jesus in this sermon. And any good sermon does so. And any sermon fails that does not do that. Specifically, he's giving Christ the glory for this miracle. But he does so by showing the audience that he's speaking to, a group of Jews, that their rejection of Christ has caused them to miss the source of this healing. And it is here we find our first point that we can extract from this passage, that rejecting the evidence of Jesus in the past will keep a person from seeing God in the present. Clearly, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And if people reject Jesus Christ coming to earth, how in the world are they going to see God intervening in lesser things? Peter doesn't get hung up about an argumentation over miracles. He makes a beeline for Jesus. He makes the main thing the main thing. And he does so in a fashion fitting for his audience. He reaches back into Old Testament history, hearkening the voices of the past. And this was very meaningful to the Jews. And as we read this, I don't want us to think that this is some 
you know, useless theological exercise. But instead he realizes that the history, the, the words of God from the past causes our faith to grow. And, and it also, in this case, helps us to understand who Jesus is. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and our fathers, he refers to. In other words, the same God who made this promise to Abraham, who worked through the patriarchs, and that same God, that's the one who did this miracle in the name of Jesus. I just love how Peter reaches back into the Old Testament to appeal to his audience. He's not ashamed of the Old Testament. He's not trying to reimagine the Old Testament for the audience today. I heard a pastor recently say essentially he rejects the hard sayings of the Old Testament because he just wants to follow Jesus. It's nonsense that fails to acknowledge the redemptive history that God has revealed through the Old Testament. And Peter uses the echoes of Jewish history to affirm the power of God. This was not just some couple guys with some special powers. This was about the same God that you worship who worked through the patriarchs is being used, the same Jesus is being used, or actually used Peter and John, I should say, to heal this man. The Old Testament is linked with who Jesus is. You, you have no Jesus. You strip Jesus from his history and from his purpose to discard the Old Testament. And then he calls them servant Jesus. And what he's doing is he's elevating Jesus in the eyes of his audience. See, the Jews had read these Old Testament passages about their Messiah being a servant For instance, in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, we see a passage that says, My servant, my chosen, who will open the eyes of the blind and bring out prisoners from the dungeon. Through this servant, former things will pass, new things will come. And from Isaiah 52, 13, it said, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Who else could he be speaking about than the Messiah, Jesus? And then Mark would write, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Jesus serve? He served the will of God. He submitted himself to the redemptive plan of God. And he served God's purpose by being the sacrificial lamb, the perfect high priest, and offering himself up on a cross. Peter is saying to his audience, this Jesus, God seeks to glorify with this miracle. And that is one way that you can recognize him. Whom you delivered over, though, and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. When we read the gospel narratives, we read of no less than four times that that Pilate sought 
to release Jesus and declared him to be innocent. It was clear to Pilate that Jesus had done no wrong. But there's a backstory that helps us to understand how the Jews could weasel their way in and cause Pilate to give him over to be crucified. Pilate was a Roman governor. They had several governors that ruled the Roman Empire. He was a Roman governor over Judea. He served at the behest of the Roman Caesar Tiberius at the time. And Tiberius had a right-hand man by the name of Sejanus, who basically ran the kingdom as Tiberius went off to Capri. And basically, the island of Capri off of the, of, uh, the coast of Italy was essentially party central for him as he gave Sejanus the power to execute what he wanted to see done in the government. But there was a little problem. Tiberius found out that Sejanus was basically planning a takeover. And so he had Sejanus killed and his entire family. So anyone associated with Sejanus would be seen as suspicious. Well, guess who put Pilate in his position of authority? Sejanus. And Pilate, again, thought Jesus to be innocent. And you might remember in John 19 where there's this interchange between Jesus and Pilate and the Jews are calling, yelling for Christ to be crucified. Pilate thinks he's innocent. And Jesus tells Pilate, basically, nothing's going to happen here without the authority of my father granting it. It really doesn't matter what you say or anybody else, essentially. And then we read in John 19, 12, these words. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Basically what's taking place is the Jews were threatening to go to Tiberias and claim Pilate was in on the coup and wanted to overthrow Caesar, Tiberius. So they use this leverage to get Pilate to have Jesus crucified. So when Peter says to the Jews, you delivered up and denied Jesus, he's pointing to a deliberate rejection of him as the Messiah, a deliberate rejection of the declaration that he is innocent, and they are calling for his crucifixion. And Peter proceeds like a lawyer to bring down a conviction. He brings down the hammer. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life when God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We saw all this take place. This is not something from generations ago. We have people alive here who could see what was happening. And his name, by faith in his name, it wasn't just some formula to calling out his name, but it was Peter and John acting in concert with the very nature and will of Jesus. Has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and the presence of you all. Listen, there are almost 200 different names given to Christ throughout the scripture. 
And here Peter uses several of those names to reflect light upon the glory of Christ. And what does this do? This shows how horrendous the sin was of the Jews who participated or acquiesced to the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jews chose Barabbas over Jesus when given the opportunity to free one of them. They chose the innocent one to kill. The guilty one they had freed. They denied the holy one. It's a term that refers to purity. Christ was without spot, without corruption. I mean, even the demons recognized that Jesus was holy in Mark 1.24, and the disciples did as well in John 6.69. And he says they, they denied the righteous one. It means just or innocent. No one could level a justified charge against Jesus. He had not sinned in word or deed or in thought. Every action, think of this, every thought was in complete Moral compliance with the law of God and God's character. Amazing. The Old Testament said the coming Messiah would be a righteous one. And he said they denied the author of life. He was involved with the creation of the world. He gives new life through the resurrection. And the one who brings life you had killed. They cannot dodge their responsibility in this. When you killed Jesus, though, you know what? God used that to raise him from the dead. He's still sovereign to demonstrate his power over death. And it's that same power that healed this lame man. There's kind of a a progression or mounting guilt that Peter lays out. Now, mind you, not every Jew was culpable in the crucifixion, but some participated and some were complicit, particularly those within earshot of Peter. We saw first that they rejected the evidence of Jesus in the past, and that kept them from seeing God working in the present. But further still, they refused to admit their sin, and this adds to their blindness. They simply could not acknowledge, many of them, that they had done something wrong. They were shocked. Shocked. That it was in the name of Jesus that this man was healed. Because they did not recognize him as Messiah. And their failure to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, listen, and to have him crucified is without a doubt, think about this, the greatest crime in human history. The greatest crime in human history. They called the Holy One dirty. The righteous one they condemned. The author of life they had killed. And their own sin desensitized them to the supernatural work of God. They did not recognize who Jesus is couldn't see their own sin, and therefore they could not recognize a miracle in the name of Jesus. We could state this positively. We could say it this way, that when we draw near to Christ 
as we humble ourselves before God and acknowledge our sin, we acknowledge our need of him, our eyes are opened up to his activity and work in our lives. But when our hearts are hardened, it's much more difficult to see God intervene. See, I think many religious people are impressed by their own applause for themselves. They can't get past themselves to notice that God is at work in other ways, in other ventures outside our little circle. And what we like to do is draw our little circles, our denomination, our church. Boy, look at our church. You know what? When we are kingdom-minded, we see God working everywhere, not just in our little territory, right? And we are just as enthusiastic to praise what, what God is doing at Fairbanks as what he's doing at CCC. Are you missing miracles? Are you failing to see God at work? You know, we can notice God's creation and be awed by, let's say, the Grand Canyon. I haven't been there yet. I hope to go there someday. And that that would be great to see. But you know what? I don't need to go to the Grand Canyon. I'd like to, but I don't need to go to the Grand Canyon to see God's handiwork Because you know what? There's been several hundred of his handiwork here today. People that bear his image, made male and female. Have you ever gloried in the creation of that? Every day. We bump up against his creation. I think our brains sometimes are just not wired to notice the unusual things? I mean, have you ever noticed like when you get a new car, you notice every one of the cars with a similar make and model once you get that new car, right? Like you, you, you have bought in, you are invested, and so you notice that taking place. I was amused, for instance, in one study, researchers put a clown on a unicycle in the path of pedestrians. Three out of four, when they were surveyed, did not notice a clown on a unicycle right in front of them. Most of them were on their phones, even though the clown was right in front. And they, when they were told about it, they looked back with astonishment, unable to believe that they'd missed him. They looked straight at him, but it did not register May we not miss the activity of God. May we have our brains trained, our hearts trained, our souls sensitized that there is a God who exists and he's continuing to work today. Not just in the lives of other people, but in our own lives. I was encouraging those that were in Ignite last Wednesday. By the way, a glorious time. We had a great time. And we talked about prayer and the need to make a list of not only the people that we pray for, the things we pray for, but make a list of the answers that God does in response to the prayers. 
And what it is, it's an opportunity for us to give glory to God. When you have an extensive prayer list and you start writing down, look at how God intervened here. It just gives, wow, look at what God has done. And you begin to recount that. You know what that does? It, it begins to build your faith. You, you, you have this confidence and it gives him glory. It's just a way of training our hearts and our minds of God's activity. May we be a church that does not miss God working in our lives. Let's pray.